once the world was full of wonders. But it belongs to humans now. We have all but disappeared. Demons, vampires, and witches hiding in plain sight. And we're live. Welcome back, pop theologians and vampire kikiers. We're so glad you are joining us for our discussion of episode three of our new favorite show, A Discovery of Witches. Thanks for joining us and make sure you're following us at um, Pop Theologians on Twitter and Facebook. Want to give a quick shout out to the Engaged Gays for hosting us um, because they're awesome. And, you know, I just want to make sure that you all are rating us on iTunes and subscribing on SoundCloud. A lot of you are starting to follow. And so we're so thankful, but make sure you go give us a quick rating or a little like here and there. And you can follow me on Twitter at jerickson85 and my foul mouth friend, Marcy. Um, where can we follow you? Hey everyone, you can follow me on Twitter at I am the men who can. John, you went a little Bob Ross there. It was it was a thing. I am all for being compared to Bob Ross. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> Aren't we all? So, so John, are you ready for the weird stories of the week? I want to jump right in. Yes. Okay. <laughs> the first one's exciting because I'm gonna sound like an asshole for like a solid three minutes, but Rent Live was on TV this week, and weirdest story of the week, it wasn't live. <laughs> Thank you, uh, next. Thank you, next is like the most appropriate answer to Rent Live, but I do kind of want to go into it a little bit because I've had no one to talk about it with, and I was like really upset. So for folks listening, here's what happened. Rent, um, like all of the other shows that have gone live over the last couple of years, um, was extremely hyped up by Fox. Everyone was super excited. The cast, um, the cast had like it was it was a pretty solid cast. Um, and then some dude, honestly, it, like if it had been Vanessa Hudgens or even Valentina or Mario, I don't even know. If it had been someone I knew, I would maybe understand what just, like, what happened. But some guy, I don't know who he is, uh, I don't think he's from Broadway, I think he's some country singer, uh, breaks his ankle during dress rehearsal, and the show did not go on. So they decided to use the B-roll of the dress rehearsal as the show that they showed live, I'm using air quotes, like Joey Tribbiani, um, and then the last 15 minutes did a live show with the old cast of Rent, right? So here's the problem. John, you, did you do musical theater or am I just assuming? I'm a homosexual, so I did do musical right? theater. Right? I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> I, I'm a... I'm me, and I did musical theater my whole life. And here's the thing. You never, ever give 100% during your dress rehearsal because you don't want to hurt your voice. You, so, like, you do enough to get the blocking, to get it all out, but you're never doing, like, a full belt, right? Like, you're never going to go full memory. You're not. You're just not going to do it. So the fact that that's what they aired, I... I'm going to be kind to these actors who, and singers, I'm using air quotes around singers, who, honest to God, like, did not expect for that footage to air. And I think it is fucking brutal that Fox decides to do that, while the live uh, audience on the day that Rent aired got to see the whole play with this dude in a wheelchair, and it was fine, and they probably sang quite a bit better. So I was really frustrated. Um, I think Rent is one of those shows that like you either love it or you hate it. Um, I will say that I'm, I straddle that line significantly. I understand the historical significance of Rent and the attention it brought to the AIDS crisis and how it continues to kind of open dialogue about the cruelty of the way in which the AIDS epidemic when it first popped up was handled and like the beauty of like the queer community kind of coming together. I will say I do have a tiny bit of like a trepidation, a trepidation of like glorifying the suffering of AIDS survivors um, because I, and John, you, you know this as well, we both worked in West Hollywood, which is a very vibrant um, queer community. I got to see the devastation. So I just didn't feel comfortable with the glamorization of it, but it is an important show and it sucked. It just sucked on TV. Oh my gosh, if I had had tomatoes, I would have thrown them. 
like a oh, month. So in the gay contract we all enter into upon <laughs> coming out of the closet, you have to like subscribe to like certain things and sign an initial. Um, there are certain things that I can't tell you, um, you know, in public about what you have to give blood for. Um, but, you know, let's just say. Loving rent is one of them, right? Well, you don't have to give blood for it, but you do have to initial that you ha you will see the musical and or watch the film right. uh, within one year of coming out. And so it, <laughs> you are fine. I feel like rent precedes coming out for a lot of people. Like, yeah. Um, right? then you like, get, you but then you have a voucher. You have a voucher. So as long as you show them your ticket stub, you're totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah and okay, if you think so. i'm joking i'm not i'll show oh, you the contract <laughs> i believe in your contract and it is signed in some rainbow gel pen um, yes <laughs> so that was the weird thing like don't say it's fucking live and put it on tv what the hell all also right. who breaks their ankle like that's an actual story like like you really went all oh, out to, and you no. broke your ankle and the drama kid in me um folks listening who have done theater you know this is you didn't invest in an understudy? My God, like you are like, this is the largest stage any show could possibly get, right? So to not have an understudy and to not honor the fact that there's a reason that is a tradition, like was just outrageous. I just, I have, I'm still pissed. I'm clearly still pissed. So moving on, moving on to story number two. I, um, I really, really love this story. So looks like residents in a West Virginia neighborhood are extremely upset because someone's been stealing their mail and their packages. So that would make me pissed. I'm always concerned someone's gonna steal my Amazon boxes, right? But perhaps equally galling, the thieves are leaving behind a picture of a llama with sunglasses as their calling card. One resident in the Charleston neighborhood was expecting a bank statement this week and instead she got a llama. Uh, I really love this story. I understand that it's theft and I, I hope no one's lost anything important, but like the llama bandits, come on. Like, I'm sorry. It's just really funny. I'm totally here for that game. Right? Like, and then like, do you even know what was taken? Right? Like what's their motive? Is it llamas? I don't know. I just, I love it. So that's a great story. Feel good story of the week. The, the llama bandits. Llamas are on the loose llamas i love llamas it's so pathetic i'm like a like third grader i'm like llamas they're so cute okay so our third story uh save this one for last who you ready john this one's from texas but it sounds like a florida story well that's hard to do <laughs> i mean all right let's let's do it let's do it so FBI agents made an astonishing discovery this morning while executing a search warrant at the residence of a Houston mortician. John, I just want you to take a guess what they found in this mortician's house. Roger Stone. Much better than the actual answer. Well played, my friend. They found, well, technically the same thing, 3,178 embalmed human penises. <laughs> That's because Roger Stone is a dick. The FBI suspects 54-year-old Dave Murray, an employee of the Harris County Morgue, has been part of an organ trafficking network. There are so many questions. Like, who are you trafficking embalmed penises to? I, then I'm like, what are you doing with them? And then I feel like throwing up because everything that goes to my head is awful. I mean, it might be witches. <laughs> hey, hey. Let's... Saying, we need ingredients for spells, too. <laughs> I'm just saying. So, um, and so, yeah. also, people are into some sick. They really, I mean, yes, people are into some weird shit. So, uh, what they found on the scene was more disturbing than even expected. Apparently, there were shelves everywhere filled to the brim with floating penises. This is a real story. He has al uh, already confessed. That it, that is how this week has gone, folks. <laughs> So embalmed penises, rent live, and llamas. That's a that's a pretty good theme. That's not a bad week. That's not a bad week. Better week than Roger Stone. Ah, but um bum. <laughs> Don't you miss us going into politics, folks? <laughs> right. Right. All right. So that's your weird news of the week. We always look for like pagan witchy news, but it feels like there's a 
cold spell going on or something. We can, like so until then, embalmed penises. I wouldn't have it either any other way. <laughs> John, you ready to dive into episode three of Discovery of Witches? Oh, am I? Let's do it. All right. So I said I would do this every week. Matthew opens with still lamenting that the world has lost magic because humans have taken over. Every week, I agree with Matthew that humans are a plague on this world, and it would be so much better if there were creatures still involved. So, Hey, Marcy, before we start off the episode, could you do me a favor? Sure. Um, could you just tell me what I think you know I want you to tell me before we start off? Oh, you were right. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Listeners, mark this, mark this moment down. It ha- happens very seldomly. You were right. I, I think everyone knows I had kind of not a slow start to the show, but it took me a bit to kind of jump in and get, get with it and to understand the dynamics of Matthew and Diana. I hope everyone's ready. I have a lot to say and a, like, I'm like pretty certain 99% of it is extremely positive. So um, I think I fell in love with the show over this last episode. So welcome everyone. <laughs> Y'all, I just have to tell you that like, I binged the rest of the show last week. Of those of you that follow us on Twitter, you can totally see like where we, where I fell in love with the rest of the show. Marcy did the same thing, and I knew it. It's amazing when you know a friend is going to fall in love with a show, and they did. I did. And now we get to talk about it with you. And so, off to the youngest tenured professor at Yale University, Diana. Mm-hmm. Diana is in an amazing gray coat when we start off. So now my coat collection that I need to build is that beautiful, I'm thinking of Miranda Priestley, cerulean blue coat from episodes one and two. And now I would really like this like Heather Gray coat as well. And take a drink. Yes. All right. So Diana's going to the library as, as professors are ought to do. And she runs into Matthew who maybe was following her. Uh, and Matthew lets her know, hey, the library is full of creatures and folks looking for you. Uh, so news has spread, right? That Diana picked up the Ashmal manuscript and that whatever powers Diana has, they, they have been able to get this manuscript out of its hiding place at the, at the library, right? So Matthew is conscious that Diana, to a certain extent, doesn't particularly understand why that's important. Um, and then... As they're kind of discussing the situation in the library, um, Julian arrives to cockblock this entire conversation as she does in every episode we've watched and in every episode we will watch from here on out, right? Yep. So Matt, Matthew's like not into her, right? So he pieces out. <laughs> He's like, you know what? I don't really have time for your friend Jillian. I'll come back, but be safe in the library. Exactly. But why is Jillian back, John? Like, oh, why is she ever back? So- Cockblocker Jillian is there to apologize about Knox being at her house. So if you remember from the last episode, Diana came to see her friend, and I put friend in air quotes, Jillian, about, you know, some stuff going on in her life, like being followed around by a vampire. And she notices Knox was in her house. And so it's caused a little bit of stress between the two best friends. And so she's there to apologize. And she tells Diana that, you know, Knox is a good man. He's in the congregation. And that she warns her about spending time with that. And by that, she means Matthew. Because, you know, vampires and witches hate each other. And, you know, Diana, as you saw in the end of the last episode, this causes her to get very angry. Because if there's anyone she knows she can trust in the situation, it ain't Jillian. So she decides to go with Matthew to Downton. I mean, his house, which looks like Downton Abbey. And I'm still convinced that this show is the sequel to Downton Abbey. But we'll get there later. But the main question that I also have to say is, where is White Butler? Where is White Butler? Right. And so... So, okay, I will say a tiny leap of faith. She doesn't know him that well. And she's like, yeah, I will definitely go to your estate, right? Um, But I don't know how the bougie Brits do, right? I feel like maybe Kate Middleton met Prince William was like, huh, this guy's a little weird and then went to like Balmoral and it was done, right? They're engaged. So I don't know. (laughs) All it takes is one white butler. Um, 
one white butler. One white butler. So what's interesting is when they get to Matthew's house, I had the same thoughts I had last week, which is, my God, these, these, this is like a time capsule, right? Like all of the paintings and everything, they're not dead people to him. They're like his friends and his cousins and like, right? Like it's interesting to think of someone who has lived through time, right? Like, and Oh, this is my cousin, Susan. Right, right. Susan and I were in the gladiator fights in the Roman pits. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. So they're at his house, um, and she's kind of prodding him a little bit about, how, like, I don't think she, he's told her yet how old he is, but he's like, you know, this is one of my homes. And then he says, obviously, like, I have to leave homes pretty often because people get suspicious. And then I'm like, how many homes does he have and how often does he cycle through them, right? Like, like, do you do, like, 50 years here, 50 years there or not really? Like, men tend to age really differently. So I think you could probably pull off, like, 20 years somewhere before people were like, the fuck, man? How much Botox have you had, you know? Well, Marcy, you know what I'm glad he didn't have in his house? Tell me a wall full of graduation caps. <laughs> Mark down the twilight shade, one. That is so great. Like, I had totally forgotten about that. Not that I oh, don't- think, I didn't. Not that I don't think Diana really wouldn't do it since, you know, she has more degrees than she has like hairs on her head. But, um, right, right. And so- Exactly. <laughs> right. So- But who is on his wall? His sister. And I think her name is Eliza. Um, I slowed slowed it down and I couldn't understand precisely what they said, but I think it's Eliza. And then Diana kind of prods him a bit about like, do you change names everywhere? And um, he said, I always keep my Christian name, right? So his last name, De Clermont. And, um, and then he says, you know, his mother lives uh, lived in France, lives in France with his stepfather. Um, but he was killed and then he kind of does this weird thing where he's like, you know, we can be killed. Uh, so putting that in my back pocket, obviously this is to let us know a couple things, right? The dude is French. His, uh, his stepdad was killed so they can be killed. Um, and his sister, dun, 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 we don't know, but there's something to find out there. Dun, 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 dun. Right. Right. Exactly. And then we transition over to the Scandinavian witch. I'm going to stick with Scandinavian witch. Um, I think her name is Satu. I don't know why it's been so hard for me to remember her name. It is Satu. I find her really intriguing on the show. I just, I don't know. Um, so Satu's on her way to Venice, I think to see the congregation, right? Um, and we find out that humans actually manage the congregation. They're like the house elves to creatures. Um, and they're tasked with keeping this congregation of creatures, so of vampires, demons, and witches, secret. So they are the secretaries. Um, and she kind of like, when she gets there, it's clear she's never been anywhere like this. And she's like, I want to see inside. And he says, no, um, but I will take you to your archive. And that demons, vampires, and witches all have different archives within this congregational building. So the way that, that I'm thinking of this is this is the UN of creatures, right? Every creature subsect has their own archives, which contain as much of their history as they know about each other. I'm guessing very powerful representations of each creature, like Sana or Satu. Sana. Satu is a very powerful witch, which is why she's being brought to the congregation. Only the best of the best ever get to see this. I don't think your average witch and like witch and wizard, your average witch or demon or vampire get to see this. Is that right, John? Well, I won't spoil stuff for you, but Don't basically spoil. it is like, you know, the main leaders of families and witches it's and like congregation. It's yeah, it's like they each have like a corner of the triangle or, you know, of like the square and they all sit there and they're like, you know, it's a democracy. You know, you need a majority to pass things and et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And so yeah, totally. She but she only is allowed into that witch archive. Right, right. And so then where do we go, John? So after we see Satu in the beautiful library, we go back and Diana is looking through Matthew's books. Um, so as anyone knows, like when you're dating someone, like you kind of look for certain things and there are certain things. Yes, that you know, times a hundred to this thread. Keep times a hundred to this thread, right? And there are certain things that like you look for if you happen to come back to their apartment that either show you that they're a psycho, sociopath, killer, that's like going to totally like 
entrap you and like do weird things to you or like they're actually legit they're smart and they're intelligent and books is always like the first key so like if you go up there and there is like crazy books on their bookshelf or like just no books at all big warning sign can i tell you when i was like 20 i was in love with the wrong person (laughs) but i didn't know it because i was too young and i was blinded but maybe like a couple years later i was talking to a friend and i mentioned yeah you know i should have known he was not my person when he very blankly looked at me and was like i don't read fiction at all i was like what (laughs) what do you mean you don't read fiction like and it wasn't like he was saying like he only read like nonfiction biographies. Like that would have killed my heart a bit, but it still meant he read shit, right? He was like, no, I, I only read theology. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> Next. Well, Next. We won't go down that dark path, Marcy. Isn't that awful though? Could you imagine a life with like no fiction? Um, I can, and we currently, they preside in the White House. In the White House. Um, so um, basically, Diana finds a lot of books in alchemy. And if you remember from her talk, from her youngest tenured professor in Yale University speech in the first episode, she loves alchemy. And you find out that Matthew's brother was an alchemist. And so there's kind of this bond that's obviously developed between them. There's something written or like almost like a thread that's being woven to show you that they almost belong together. And so Matthew then asks if she can cast a spell to bring back the book to her. Remember, this is that Ashmole, like 3,466, <laughs> whatever it is. But this really important book that he asks right. if she can bring back to him. And, you know, she starts to realize, and he knows this already, that she's really not good at spells. And he wonders if she fits some, like, type of spells prescription or, like, how a spell is often sometimes done that only certain people can access it. And, you know, he tests her with, wine dropping on a book and the book moves away. So he realizes a couple of things here that come out in later episodes that he realizes that her magic is instinctual and that no, he, it only I mean, he comes says out. that he says that in this episode. Like yeah. He says like, "Oh shit, I was right." And I was like, first off, do not bet on a thousand-year-old manuscript to point you're right. Like, my God, like test it out somewhere else. But he's like, I knew it would, I knew you would do something. Cause like, and then I'm like, cause he knows she's such a book nerd that there's no world in which she would let his wine spill all over an illuminated manuscript. Exactly. And but you know, I think the thing that you see about Diana and reader, you know, listeners, we're not going to spoil it for you, but these are some really important clues that it is instinctual and that it comes out when it needs it. So remember those two things. And so as you see, when it comes to certain things like coats, tenure, or protecting books, it comes out when she needs it. I just want you to know that if I was walking down like a street, like a really bougie street in New York, and I had this power, it would just be coats flying towards me because I need them all. I need all of the coats. And I can attest to this because as a roommate of Marcy's, she has a lot of coats. Oh my God, it's outrageous. It's outrageous. So, okay. Now we go back. Is it to Madison, New York? Because every part of me wants to say Madison, Wisconsin. Madison, Wisconsin. It's on the East Coast somewhere in New York. We go back to somewhere bougie on the East Coast with a bunch of really pretty trees, which is where Diana's aunts are, right? And one of her aunts is doing um, a form of, of saging divination, of scrying. So for folks who don't know what this is, you know what's coming, a Harry Potter reference. Uh... This, this should remind you of the pensive that Dumbledore has, right? He looks into this like bowl that is full of a liquid and he can kind of see into the future or into the past, right? Scrying is something really similar. Um, there are folks who use certain bowls and certain materials and, and feel that they, they have the ability to kind of use this to put themselves into a meditative state that lets them look forward or backwards, right? Um, And she says she doesn't see a lot, but she does see a man in the shadows following Diana. And then her aunts kind of disagree. Is it Knox, right? Is it Knox or is it someone else? Is it Knox, right? Um, And I think it's interesting because this is a critique of the, like the man in the shadows being dangerous for Diana um, is making us question, because in our heads, it could be Matthew, right? but if, if I was to say who is more dangerous to Diana right now, Matthew or Knox, clearly we're going with Knox, right? Um, 
So, so it's interesting, but I also think it's interesting to get a sense of the, the powers that her aunts have, right? So I think this is, this is important. This, this is grounding it in like very real witchcraft, which I appreciate in the show. So I really love how the witchcraft is like displayed in the show. And Sean, I know you and I want to join my coven. <laughs> I would have to leave my own. Oh, fuck. Sorry. <laughs> but what I was saying is like, I just love how natural it is. Like even right. in the later episodes where the magic kind of gets a lot more in the story, it's a elemental, it's instinctual, it's rip, it's ripple effects. It's not like crazy wand twirling. This isn't a critique on Harry Potter or, you know, just great, like grandiose CGI. It's subtle. And I really like that, how they built that into this world. Agreed. Completely agreed. Um, so then we go back to, um, to Diana and like it seems like she not only accepts but like really very quickly comes to terms with the fact that Matthew may be right about her magic and that it seems to be tied to need or danger um, and so they're talking and she says the thing is I don't remember living with magic right and so I don't remember a lot about my parents. I don't remember a lot about magic, but life without magic is fine. Like I've been doing fine for years. And Matthew just kind of laughs and goes, you have not been living without magic. You use it all the time. It's just, it barely registers for you, right? Which I think was his way of saying, you didn't really write a great dissertation. Your magic helped you. But that is just how I feel about it. But he's right. He's entirely right that like from that first scene that we get of Diana kind of pulling the, um, the papers that she dropped on the floor, right? We get that like she, she maybe doesn't process in her head that what she's doing is magic because in her head, it's something spectacular, right? And I think we're in for a lot of spectacular, but like she has been using it. Um, and Matthew kind of during this talk, they're walking, like opens up, lets her know he was born in the year 500 and something AD. He's not particularly sure when um, because they weren't keeping records back then. <laughs> That's how old he is. Right. And Diana is so turned on by that that she invites him over for dinner. Uh, wouldn't you? I, I mean, yes. I, I mean, mean, totally. He had me at White Butler. He had me at, you had me at White Butler. I know, I know. So we then go to a scene where a shopkeeper, um, and it's kind of, you know, a, um, it's this woman and she is a demon, but, you know, she's born to witches. And, you know, she's really unsure if this is a thing. The scene is a larger thread to something that comes out later in the I episodes. I was really frustrated with this scene because I don't think they introduce these characters well. Yeah. So I was just kind of like, wait, what? Like, who is this? Like, what? I, don't, I had no context for this. Yeah, and so the context isn't there, and and as you see with um, one of the shopkeepers' mom, who comes later on, you notice who she is, and she has a larger role, and so yeah, the whole introductory part of it is you know not really there. But hold hold tight, viewers and listeners, like we'll get and there. Marcy. And, and Marcy, and <laughs> Marcy, we'll get there. But basically, then we go back to Diana, who's on her phone, on the phone with her aunts, and she's basically defending her decision to hang out with Matthew, because they're worried, because obviously they saw someone in the scrying bowl that, you know, was following her. And so they want, the aunts remind Diana of a story of that her mom used to tell her. And, um, listeners remember what i'm about to say so this story focuses on a shadow prince who lived between spaces and time and the story focuses on how you know this little girl and this little prince might be related or have some common theme with each other so they move along from that and what you really notice is that there's something that her aunts aren't really telling her because they probably know stuff that they're not but we are only on episode three right now so they're worried about her that's what it comes down to and then she tells them she invited him for dinner and that's pretty much it and you know diana as the youngest tenured professor at yale university and soon to be oxford university she's pretty sure of herself and you know no one's really going to tell her what to do when it comes to matthew because i think she has an instinctual understanding of like her attraction to him yeah so i think what's interesting here is that I feel like this is a little heavy handed. Um, I'm not going to make predictions yet, but it did feel a bit heavy handed. Um, but 
what I enjoy about it is Diana is not the type of person who seems paralyzed by other people's opinions. Like she was never not going to invite him for dinner. She was never not going to like throw herself at him and be like, I want you. And I don't mean that in like, in a derogatory way. I think it's really admirable that she's just like, all right, I like, I hear you, but I'm making decisions based off of my own kind of rationale. Right. And I appreciate that. So then obviously she's going to have this dinner with Matthew at her house um, so she's walking around, uh, what looks like a marketplace and she runs into Marcus from the vampire Kiki and he's like, Hey, I'm still really interested in your blood. And he says of the normal conversation, totally normal. That is about as white supremacist as it gets <laughs> like, but he says, Hey, by the way, we have traced witch blood to four different original families, right? Um, and so in my head, I'm trying to think of the names that were very popular during Salem. Bishop was one of them. Good was another one. And then I can't remember any other two. So I will, I will do some research on like some of the bigger families during Salem. Um, but I was like, oh, interesting. So like, I guess in their head, we're looking at like the four houses, right? Like there's four houses of witches. And so he's like, I want to test out your DNA. And then she goes, well, help me figure out what the fuck to feed a vampire on a sexy date and I'll let you have my DNA, right? I mean, that's a pretty good compromise. I feel like that's a great compromise because I don't know, I don't know what I would give a vampire for dinner other than myself. Oh, I know. <laughs> so we go back to Satu, our Scandinavian Russian princess over there. And she is at, everyone is at a library in this show. I have never felt so so like heard in my life because this is my life. I There's nowhere I like being more than in the stacks of a very old library. Um, John and I, I think, spent most of our masters and most of our PhD coursework in the stacks at Claremont's, uh, the consortium's library. And it was like, John, that smell stays with me forever. It's like, yeah, I used to go on the earthquake proof area of the stack. Oh gosh, I did not. I was totally open to being squished by books. It just sounded romantic. So, so Satu is in the stacks doing research on Diana, right? And she finds um, this like document that has been retracted. So like, so similar to most of Mueller's report when it comes out, everything is blacked out. And she's like, fuck no. And she like whispers like a spell, puts her hand over the piece of paper and the black permanent marker just kind of rolls off the paper, um, which, hey, Satu, we need that for the second the Mueller report drops. Um, but she is looking for information on Diana. And suddenly my boo and future husband, second husband, Domenico interrupts her and he's like, in the sexiest voice, which I can't even imitate, who is Diana Bishop, right? <laughs> like, and that That's is the pretty first- pretty sexy, Marcy. It, it is, right? I mean, like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so, I mean, I'm thoroughly turned on, so keep I, going. You, I'm sure you are. So Knox and Satu, this is the first time it clicked for me, that Knox and Satu were not letting anyone in on the Diana situation, the sitch which means they think there's something important about Diana and so important it's worth keeping a secret from the rest of the congregation, including the vampires and creatures. Um, I did not pick up on that until that moment where I was like, oh shit, so Knox is acting rogue, completely rogue. Mm -hmm. Well, the witches are because they know the something witches, that right. no one else knows, but right. Matthew technically in the vamp Kiki world. Right. The, but the Vam Kiki doesn't really count. I think of them kind of as part of the Dumbledore's army, right? Yeah. There it is. My second Harry Potter reference in like 25 minutes. All right. So then Domenico, like the tattletale that he is, runs over to Juliet's dad, the creepiest man to have ever lived, um, and tells him about the fact that the, the witches have some information and that something is up with Matthew de Clermont and Diana, right? And they, they word it really differently. They're like, Matthew's harassing a witch, right? And they should investigate it. And I'm like, first off, finally, someone says harassment. So they clearly are also like, it's a little stalkerish, um, though I have moved away from that opinion. But this leads me to wonder, and John, uh, without spoilers, if you can help me walk through this, because you've read all of the books. 
So are witches and vampires or vampires and demons, like who's allowed to hang out? There's like, I mean, basically you're supposed to stay in your faction. Like you're not supposed to bother one another. For anyone who listened to our Crimes of Grindelwald podcast, if I have to go through another queenie emotional debacle, I'm not ready, John. Like I'm not. It, I'm it was, still not ready for it. I'm still not over Queenie's uh, righteous anger at the fact that she could not hang out with a human and she is a witch. So we'll see what happens. But that was, I thought that was an interesting kind of thing. And like Juliet's dad is, is upset by this information and he starts praying the Roman rite, which is really interesting um, in Latin. And for me, again, similar to Matthew in the first episode, praying the rosary, this is just a nod to the intersections of traditional paganism and, and for me, Catholicism, to be honest with you. Um, and I, we, we both know those are my favorite intersections. So yeah. like La Brea and like Vine. <laughs> La Brea and Vine? <laughs> I don't know. I don't even think they meet up. I don't think they meet up either. I've, have I forgotten my streets? Oh, Kawanga and no. Kawanga and Vine. No, yeah. Kawanga. They're <laughs> both is, north. Sorry, y'all. We're going to get back. This is, the, this is the he moment. He opens up a box <laughs> Wait, and there's John, a head please. in it. You have to apologize. This is the moment where John and I become Californians and start walking you through our streets or highways. Uh, it is a bad trait all Californians California's we are happening. so sorry, listeners. Yeah, but yes, Juliet's dad's praying. He goes to this weird little like tabernacle thing, opens it, and there's a fucking head. There's a fucking head. Help me with there. the head, John. So I can't tell you much, but obviously you can figure out that this head is someone powerful. And what do they say, Marcy? Beware the witch of blood of the lion and of the wolf. Beware the witch of the blood of lion and wolf. Something like that. Very dramatic. And then he closes the door. He's like, thanks, bye. Right. And in my head, I'm like, lion and wolf? We're, lo- we're talking about Sansa Stark here. <laughs> like, that's it. I don't know. Well, more to come on more this head um, in the later episodes. We'll definitely talk about this individual that's in the box. But basically, then we go back to the scene that Marcy really didn't understand because it was introduced introduced weird. But we go back to the shopkeeper scene and we have Sophie. We learn their names with her boyfriend, Nath- Nathaniel. And then uh, Nathaniel's mother is obviously comes in and she's a member of the congregation is as a, a demon. demon or a witch? She's a demon. She's like a creature, basically. I get that. And so, yeah. And so Sophie has been charged with keeping a family statue of this mythical creature Diana safe and it seems to like because she's also pregnant um, and she was born of witches but she's also a demon that there is a lot of stuff of brewing here with almost kind of what we were talking about before with some like cross speciesization and you know really what is going on in this world right now when as you saw in the first couple of episodes vampires can't even you know reproduce at the moment because something's wrong but here we have a really interesting pregnancy aka we need Mari Povich situation going on right and she is kind of so my understanding of the little statue is that her family has passed down the statue of of I'm guessing like the Greek mythology Roman mythology Diana right and that her family has always said you'll know when the time has come for this to mean something I'm like well Sophie the time has come it's here well Sophie I need to know (laughs) it's here it's here it's here so then we go to a scene with Miriam and Matthew and Miriam um is concerned that Matthew is basically hungry for Diana it's basically like from the Kiki yeah, Miriam is from the Vamp Kiki. And just like White Butler, they assume that there's something else going on here that Matthew really can't understand. And that, you know, we start learning a little bit more about, you know, what witches and vampires should and should not do. And we learn that there's a thousand-year-old rule that witches and demons cannot interact, and it's brought up now. And that no one has really enforced it, but, you know, but because like with all the draconian laws that we currently have in our books currently in the U.S. political system or around the world, hey, it totally makes sense that there would be a thousand year old rule that says like, you can't talk to this person and that they're just going to enforce it now because it's like convenient. And for anyone listening, like literally I live in a state that still has anti-sodomy laws that still has like 
very racist Jim Crow-esque laws about who can marry each other. So like that, this is definitely similar to Crimes of Grindelwald, a modern critique of the fact that as long as that type of racism, hatred is enshrined in law, it is powerful. We can't just pretend it's not. Exactly. So. so then what we go back to is we start seeing that Diana is obviously prepping her house for dinner with Matthew. And who knocks on the door but Peter knocks. And um, he knocks on her door and instead he heckles her about joining Matthew. And it is just like annoying because it's like, girl, I did not invite you over. Like, get off my, get off my front lawn, get off my porch. And then thankfully, Matthew comes in and knocks pretty much is like, uh oh, peace out, bye, because he understands that. And this is kind of like a spoiler, almost not a spoiler, spoiler that, you know, they know who each other are. And I think what you notice is that Peter sees Matthew. And they obviously understand that they're both trying to get to the same thing. But Knox doesn't understand really why Matthew is there, ultimately, because he doesn't know that Matthew and Diana are that connected as they actually are in this moment. Right. Um, so, so, yeah, it's like a two-second male standoff, and Knox is like, bye. Yeah, he's, like, he's like, bye, gotta go. Bye, gotta go. And then Diana's like, Matthew, I worked real hard on this dinner. John, yeah. tell me what you would feed a vampire for dinner. McDonald's. <laughs> well, okay. All right. This is, I mean, like, it's kind of like my go-to now because I'm so exhausted with, like, fighting fascism that, like, you know, I'm kind of like, you know what I need at the end of this? You're in this L.A. You need to be going to In-N-Out. What the hell are you doing at a Yeah, moment? but that line is so long. Okay, my, <laughs> I would order sushi. Not bad. Some raw meat. Some raw meat. raw meat, right? Raw fish. Like, you know, we don't need bloody red meat because it contributes, it adds. We don't, we all know that meat consumption adds to climate change. I'm just saying, but. Nice you know. way to move in some sustainability talk, man. Thank you. But Marcy, what would you feed a vampire? Myself. <laughs> all right, Domenico, here you go. Here you go. I would definitely do some steak tartare um on a toston so he knows i'm latin but i'm also like very caring about his needs and you're also dtf down exactly. to feed. down to feed well played so diana feeds him deer red wine red berries <laughs> there's a theme and i think the deer was raw right I'm pretty sure. I can't remember. I'll have to go back and watch. But right. the theme is definitely like, I'm hungry, baby. Right, right. And then like when he picks up the wine, he's like, mm, I can smell the violets from the garden of like Elizabeth II. And I'm like, no, dude, like, no. First of all, you're that person that we yes! take on wine trips. I don't go out to drink at bars with people like that. When I studied abroad in Florence, I took a wine tasting class. If I ever look through my blue books again of what the fuck I wrote, I swear to God, it's like, I can taste this, the sun and wood from the local trees. And I couldn't, I honestly, I like, could not tell the difference. Chianti was Chianti and that's it. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, two buck chuck is two buck chuck. Two buck chuck is everything. Um, so I did want to comment that partway through this scene, I realized that they're wearing matching blue shirts. The wallpaper is this gorgeous kind of blue. And I'm like, the color palette of this show is to die for. It is like this kind of gloomy, but bright, like bright blues, teals, grays, like peeling wallpaper a bit. Like there's something about it that I really, really love. I constantly pay attention to the color themes of films. Um, my favorites are always going to be like, um, like Marie Antoinette, Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette is one of my favorites. Moonrise Kingdom has a beautiful color palette. This is up there for me. It's really pretty. I love the colors in the show. Right? It's just really, really pretty. So like this date goes like any date, right? Matthew's sitting there trying to figure out what Diana knows about witchcraft or witch laws. So I think this is when he's like, do you know how dangerous this is? Right? And she's like, I don't know shit. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a typical date. It's a typical date where they just kind of go back and forth and just eat a whole bunch of red meat basically. But basically Diana pushes Matthew's limits and unlike with Twilight where he can't 
be around her or something like that. I don't know. It was a horrible <laughs> movie. But anyways, um, Matthew says that she's the one that needs to be careful because he might not be able to help himself being around her. And that, you know, he really does try to scare her into being careful. And he moves really quickly and grabs her, though. And, you know, he can hear her blood. And it's really tempting, just like in the early episode. And, you know, what we're really understanding is, like, in this vein of like what we're thinking here is that men cannot control themselves and women cannot be safe unless they're with other women like that's clearly a theme that we see a lot in these types of films television shows books and she tells him then that she is safe with him and kisses him and like that's reclaiming the agency that's self-female empowerment that's like and like, that look is here. holding him accountable to not fall for a toxic narrative that he is unable to do the right thing and I think, exactly. I think that's really important because you're totally right. That moment where she's like, no, 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 I have assessed the situation. I am fucking safe. You are safe and I want to kiss you and you're not going to kill me because I kiss you. And like, that is, so remember we're untangling. There is no way to separate this type of toxic masculinity from purity culture, right? So what we're seeing is a woman assert that like, Her wants and needs are good. They are not dangerous to a man or his salvation or his condemnation. And that men can be told to grow the fuck up, right? Just because you can hear my pulse, just because you can see my like collarbones, just because you saw a tit does not mean that like all, all decency is off, right? So obviously this first kiss went really well. Matthew's like, thanks. It's time for me to go home and put my pajamas on. Um, I'm going to call White Butler in an Uber. And he heads out. So. Peace is out. He's out. Uh, It was like a wine and dine type thing. So then we go back to Venice. (laughs) I was like super creeped out by this scene. And I need you to tell me that it's going to be okay. So Juliet, our beautiful Juliet in Fair Verona, is being given a bath by her father. Am Am I right? Um, it's just creepy because of how it's set up, but yeah, she's basically being bathed. I think it's like, I don't remember if he sired her or not. I can't. He did. In the first episode, it said he did. Yeah. So it's kind of like she, he, her daddy. And, you know, yeah, I was like, Whoa. it's just weird. And like, basically the whole scene is like, go find Matthew. Thanks, dad. Okay. Bye. Yeah. I was like, no, no. So then we transition back to Diana the next day after this dinner situation with the kiss. And she looks a little like sheepish. She's like, man, did I get rejected? Like, could he not sleep over? And I'm like, girl, if that's what you wanted, you should have asked for it. So, but um, as she's kind of sitting there thinking, drinking her tea in her beautiful blue clothing, she sees this envelope kind of slip through underneath her door, right? Yeah. She opens the door and no one's there. And she's like, what the fuck? Like, what, what on earth is happening? She opens it, and this manila envelope is full of pictures of her parents um, when they were dead, right? Very violent pictures. And I don't know if you notice this, like a wind goes through her hair. And I think that is her power kind of percolating, right? Something's definitely percolating. And, you know, we might yeah. see something come on up. Right. And so she goes over to Jillian, and she accuses her of knowing that Knox sent these pictures and of being a dumbass. And Jillian is shocked and she's like, what? He would never do that because she's a dumbass, right? Yeah, basically Jillian sucks. Jillian sucks. And then Jillian's like, instead of focusing, she's like, did you give the book to Matthew? And it's, here's something I keep thinking about, which this is an allegory to our own modern racism today. What is Jillian so afraid of? She has never talked to a vampire in her entire life, but she is hell bent on getting them destroyed, right? And that's how prejudice works. It reminds me of District 9, that a film that if you haven't seen it, it's fantastic. They refer to these aliens that come to the planet as cockroaches. And there's an important reason that we dis- make distinctions with language for the other, right? So if you remember earlier in the episode, Jillian refers to Matthew as that, right? She's like, are you going to go have dinner with that kind of type thing? And like, that's very similar here. But also when racism and prejudice takes a, a hold of ourselves and our hurt, Um, I don't say this to be corny. You develop an empty empathy gap. And we see that happening right now, right? We see that happening with the way that they, that like some folks in this country are talking about like immigrant children or the way that they're talking about like folks who were 
furloughed without pay for months on end. Like there's an empathy gap. And like, it's funny when you see it play out in like literature or on film and you're like, yeah, that's, that's, that resonates with me. This moment resonated with me. She just saw one of her friends come up to her with pictures of decapitated parents. And like her reaction is not to hug her or anything like that. She's like, well, did you give the book to that dude? And it's like, my God, like we're like, there's an empathy issue there, right? Yeah, and Jillian sucks. Jillian just sucks. So I feel like Matthew can feel that something's wrong right? These are the, the lassos that connect him and Diana that we don't understand yet. Like, here's a piece of it, right? Because he's just like, looking through her apartment, finds the pictures and is like, oh shit, I need to find her before this goes south. Oh girl. And then basically Diana goes back to the library and she is mad and she's hoping that she can finally access this book. And, and she's hoping that like what we were talking about earlier, that her power is being instinctual, that she can get it that way. Cause she's got a lot of rage going through her. So she is told by her friend, that's the uh, library person that Sean, that Sean, <laughs> That her that the book has been being asked for all week and that it's missing. She has no idea. They have no idea where it is. And she says to check one more time for me, and then goes to sit down back in the library in her usual spot. But she notices it's full of folks waiting for her to do just exactly this. And then who walks in but the two worst people, Sucky Jillian and doesn't know how to take no for an answer, Peter Knox are there. And Knox says to her, I don't want you to turn out like your mother, Rebecca. And she turned her back on her own kind. So This is a massive spoiler, isn't it? It's a it's a spoiler in the sense that we're starting to understand that like with the photos of her parents and like her powers and her aunt's worry and her own worry that there's something here that is connected to her parents and that her parents and Knox know each other and that there's a larger story at play. But it's being told, I think, really skillfully and how they're unwe and like well, how they're peeling the onion. I will say, last week I said I'm pretty sure that Diana's parents and Knox are a James Lilly. Uh, Snape situation, right? Um, and it's playing out like that. Like that comment right there, don't want you to turn out like your mother. Snape was obsessed with Lily. He could never forgive James for being James, right? I'm going to take a gander here. John, you don't, you cannot tell me if I'm right or wrong, obviously. So this is entirely based off of three episodes worth of like of stuff, but I'm going to guess Diane is not a full-blood witch. And I'm going to guess her dad is not a full-blood witch. Because Knox's allegiance to her mother, they, I think we got some reference that they grew up together, but it's clear she was a full witch. Something's up with her dad. Like the reason Knox hates, hates his dad and the way in which he hates him reminds me a little bit of Jillian's bullshit hatred of Matthew, which is prejudice. It's not just like you took the girl I loved with the green eyes, but like it feels like something else. Yeah, um, I won't tell you. Thank you. What to think. Um, <laughs> Or if you're right or wrong. I'm usually right, except when I'm wrong. <laughs> except when you're wrong. But basically, so Sean comes back and he's like, hey, dude, like the book is missing. And Knox tells him to go look again. And then he attacks Sean. And this is in the moment where, just like in the episodes before, you started, you finally get to see Diana's full power. So Diana's powers get to go haywire. And there's this sudden massive windstorm in the library and she has completely no control over it once it starts and everyone is flying everywhere. It's being like in a wind tunnel. And we start, we find out later that it's called witch wind, but basically she is blowing people around like no one's business. And she has basically can taking care of her enemies who are there to hurt her and her friend, Sean, and then Matthew runs in to help. And it's only when he touches her that she's able to make all the witch wind stop and calm down. And so Can we're I tell left you to- I thought that was really beautiful. Why? I, I think because, okay, I, okay. I think I said it in another episode, I struggle with like severe anxiety, right? And like, I get really, really bad panic attacks. Um, and one of the most beautiful things about like, I'm going to get all, all like cute for a second. One, one thing that has always shocked me is when I'm in the midst of a full breakdown, right? Like where I'm hyperventilating, like I have lost control. Sometimes when 
my loved ones, my husband in particular, when he puts his hand on me, it's like I regain power over my body. Like just the simple affirmation of I'm here, you're not alone in this is enough to like bring my endorphin rush down. And so this scene for me, while it is a magical scene, was for me like an image of like a man saying, I am here for you in this storm. And like that is that for me, that was like a really beautiful scene that did not have anything to do with magic, but had to do with the type of relationships that that we look for, right? Yeah. And it's a completely beautiful scene because you're starting to understand how powerful Diana really is. Right. And basically, as he tells her to breathe, she completely passes out um, because it's take, the witch wind has taken a lot of um, uh, energy out of her. So then um, you wake up and you see that, Mar- well, you come back to the scene and you see Marcus and Matthew are taking care of the people. And uh, Diana, they tell her that you performed witch wind right. and Matthew wants to take on Knox, but Marcus tells him that it would endanger everyone because remember he's a vampire and Mar- Knox. Well, and a, like, it seems like the congregation is pretty clear that you cannot have them going up against each other. Like not just Knox more. and Matthew, but that, that the creek, there's a peace accord of some sort. Yeah, there's definitely a peace accord. And right. so Marcus tells him to take Diana to Hamish. He pretty White much Butler. tells him to calm the fuck down. <laughs> and Matthew's like, no, this is not a job for White Butler. This is a job for me to take her to my true home in France with my mother. And when we discuss episode four, I love this actress. I'm so excited that she's in the I show. Know. I know. I will say, I would not want to wake up from something traumatic and find out I'm going to my mother-in-law's, but whatevs. Um, Diana uh, falls back asleep because the witch wind has obviously knocked the shit out of her. Wakes up again, um, and then she, like, Matthew tells her, like, we have to go. Like, it is no longer safe here. I need, he takes this moment to ask her to trust him. Because she's like, we can go to my aunt's. And he's like, no. Like, we have got to get you somewhere where none of these folks can trespass. Um, And she does, like, the bravest thing, which is she just says yes, right? Um, Because he says no one would, no witch would ever dare to trespass in vampire land. Um, And then he kisses her to the sweet, sweet sounds of Stevie Nicks go my own way. It was my favorite part of this episode. It was a beautiful cover of the song by this woman named Lizzie's. Guys, you guys got to check. Marius. Oh my God, you guys got have to check her out. Like, absolutely, an amazing cover of one of my favorite songs. Um, it was so I love. Ever since I think I started watching Grey's Anatomy, who kind of really did open the the doors to like music and they were television. Um, and it has become like a thing on television of like what does your sound like what music do you have and like you see this in really popular television shows the budget they spend on music alone is in is huge and a lot of people have do covers obviously because it's cheaper i mean this is you know a really expensive song by its own right um but it this song is incredible and i totally like if you weren't in love with this show before like when a good song and great acting and a, an amazing story that you want to hit play in the next episode, like set it up. It's perfect. Well, and okay. So, so we're going to France, right? Um, Which I would normally be like, eh, but I'm, I'm here for it. That is rude. I'm a quarter French, <laughs> but here's where this, this episode landed for me. When we first started the show, I felt, I'm just going to be completely, completely honest. I felt like I was in a grown up twilight. So much more respectable than Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, but I I was still struggling with kind of the tropes of the, the vampire boyfriend. Um, by the end of this episode, I realized that this show has nothing to do with Matthew and it has everything to do with Diana and, and what it means to be brave and fearless in, in situations where sometimes it's easier not to be, right? So I was thinking a lot about like, Diana could easily have kind of turned this all off, right? She could have packed up her shit and gone home. Um, She could have ignored the book, right? She could have ignored her instincts. She's been studying stuff that is useful to her for her whole life, right? So Diana's kind of a lesson in saying yes, right? Like in saying yes to things that scare you and saying yes to the relationships that you could just chicken out of, right? Like here's a dude who could literally eat her, right? And yet she's like, fuck you. 
I want this, let's do this. This is a dangerous kind of love, but not dangerous for me. Dangerous because it's gonna ask us both to be bigger than we are right now. And that is sexy to me. That is a challenge to all of us who sometimes look at love in the face and are like, I would prefer a more comfortable type of love. Like I would prefer a more Netflix and chill type of love than this, right? And so I've, I really fell in love with the idea that this is an affirmative heroine who is choosing her own destiny. She's not being dragged into it like um, Bella in, in, in Twilight or, or Anna in, in Fifty Shades of Grey. This is the opposite. This is a woman having full control and agency. And also for anyone who's like, yeah, but she can't even control her powers and needs everyone's help. So do most women who have been oppressed by patriarchy. And we we'll are, get there. Yeah, we are at a disadvantage. We're at a disadvantage. We're conditioned to say no. We're conditioned to make ourselves small. We are conditioned to not be great. And if we are great, then we are conditioned to be great, but a little bit less than the man who sits right next to us. At no point has Matthew ever been like, fuck, she's too powerful. It is intimidating or it is not something I want to be around. He's in awe of her. And that is so fucking wonderful. Like it is so fucking wonderful to see a man in front of a woman who is probably more powerful than he is, but at least at this moment, a big ball of potential. And he's not trying to squish it. He wants her to reach her potential. He wants to protect her from a world that continues to try to make her smaller, including his, like her family who keeps trying to shut it down too. I am so fucking here for this, John. I am so here for this. So in other words. You were right. I was right. That is the perfect way to end the show. Exactly. Everyone, we will see you for episode four. Thank you so much for tuning in again. Um, our numbers have been going up and it's amazing. We're so happy for all of the listeners that join us week to week. Um, we do this for fun, but like, honestly, it's just great to interact with everyone. Don't forget to interact with us on Twitter. Definitely review the show. You can review us on, on, um, on iTunes uh, and we will be back next week. Happy Van Kiki. <laughs> Bye everyone.